Awesome. Well, before we dive in today, just wanted to take a moment and say thank you once again for all of the love, the prayers, the support. Um, last weekend was an incredible honor with the official installation. And I think Pastor Emil really nailed it. There is truly an excitement in the air. And there is an expectancy in the air of what God is going to do. And I'm telling you, every single day, every single week, I'm just getting more and more excited for what the Lord's putting in my heart about what he wants to do here. So let me just challenge all of us and just encourage all of us. Let's make a fresh determination in our lives to give ourselves completely to the cause of Christ. And I said it before, I'm going to say it again and again and again. Let's be a church that makes an impact that resounds throughout all of eternity. And that's an awesome thing to be. Awesome. I also want to encourage everyone to come out next week. You do not want to miss next week. All right. So next week we are handing the reins over to the youth. It is Youth Sunday. That's right. Let's show some excitement for them. This church, and I may be biased, but that's okay. This church is blessed with the most amazing youth pastors and the most amazing students in the entire world. All right. And I'm biased, and I'll admit it, but I believe that with all of my heart. I tell Pastor Brian Matt all the time, I'm so thankful that my kids will get to be in their youth ministry. So, But be here next week. They're going to lead the service. They're going to do awesome things. Come ready and come expectant, because God is going to do something powerful through those students. Trust me, you don't want to miss that one. It's going to be good. All right, so as we dive in today, what I would like to talk to you all about is what I call a dangerous church word. A dangerous church word. Now, you may be sitting there and you say, okay, well, what makes this particular word so dangerous? Simply put, it's a word that cannot be found in the Bible, yet has become part of standard Christianese. But I believe how we use it and how we think about it really isn't all that helpful, and it actually holds the church back. Does anybody want to guess what that word is? Oh, not quite. I tricked you on this one. See, I tricked you on this one. I didn't put this part in the stuff. So anybody that said that I know reads the emails that go out this week. So I know who read them and I know who didn't. So no, not quite. The word is revival. Oh, I just stepped on some toes there. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, Pastor Josh, are you a raving madman? How can the word revival be a dangerous word? I mean, if you grew up in a Pentecostal or charismatic church, and I did, I grew up in this one, you know, and it has been ingrained and conditioned in you, it is in your DNA that you always have to pray for revival. Always. It is so ingrained in what you do. In fact, it's so ingrained in Pentecostal and charismatic circles that it seems like every prayer must somehow include that prayer for revival. Every Pentecostal knows you have to slip in that little prayer for revival. You can be a Chick-fil-A, and you can get your chicken sandwich, and you can be getting ready to eat, so you're like, I got to pray over this meal, and you're like, oh, Father, thank you for this chicken sent from heaven, delivered through Chick-fil-A, just bless this food to our body. Oh, Lord, and send revival. Right? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just ingrained in everything that we do. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever use that word. There's nothing inherently wrong with the word itself. However, I believe our concept of revival is where the issue lies, 
And our concept of what that is is potentially detrimental to the church's advancement. All right, I'm not sure everybody is convinced here, but I promise, just stick with me for a little bit here, and this is all going to make sense before we're said and done. All right, so before we unpack that, I want to set a foundation. And here, for all the people that paid attention, that's where we're going next. I need to set a a foundation. We first need to understand the difference between something being average and something being normal. So math lovers rejoice. Those who don't love math, I promise we're not going to go in too deep here. I suspect everyone knows what an average is. Does everybody know what an average is? Some of you are like, it's been a long time since I've been in math. I start thinking about that too. That's coming up on my 25th high school reunion time frame, and that's like mind-blowing to me. And I know some of you are like, rookie, what are you talking about? But just is. But we know what an average is, right? You take a data set, you add it up, and then you divide it by the number of items, and then you get the average, right? If you want to find the average test score for a class... You simply add up all of the test scores, you divide by the number of students, and you find the class average. So think about this, right? You have little Johnny, and little Johnny gets a 20 on a test. Little Johnny should have studied more. And then you have little Susie, and she gets 100 on the test. She is the overachiever. You add the two scores together, 20 plus 100, divide by 2, 60 is the average. Now, averages can be helpful in some instances when it comes to comparison, But the problem with averages is that they don't always tell the whole story. So you can be above average and you can still not be doing all that great. Let me give you an example of this. I had an introduction to computer security class when I was at Carnegie Mellon University. Now the professor of this class was known to be a bit high on himself. He had written a bunch of textbooks. He was very in demand across the United States for talking about computer security very high on himself, he was very smart, and he loved to make sure everybody knew how smart he was. So we took the very first test in the class. The class average was a 45. And yes, that is out of 100. 45 out of 100. Now, I got a 60 on it. The highest grade in the class was a 65. Now, here's why averages don't always tell the whole story. My grade was well above the average grade in the class, And yet, I still technically failed. Now, he graded on a curve, right? So that all came up. I think I actually got an A on that when all was said and done. But you can see that averages don't always tell the whole story. The simple fact is, you can be above average and still not be doing all that great. Now, there's another tool of comparison, and it's the concept of normal, right? And so this is found by comparing something to the ideal standard. If you meet the standard, it would be called normal. Whereas if you don't meet the standard, it's called abnormal. This concept is used with manufacturing lines all the time, right? They're manufacturing something, they're building something, there's a standard they're building it to. If something doesn't meet the precise standard, it's considered abnormal and they discard it. Only if it meets the standard is it considered normal. What does that mean? That means that normal is good. Normal is what you want. Normal is good. All of this to say is that something we must be careful with in the church today is that we often use the concept of average to measure ourselves rather than the standard of what's normal. So somebody may come and they may ask, well, how is your church doing? How's it going at your church? There is a tendency to immediately start comparing it to other churches. Well, you know, we're not as big as that church, but we're bigger than those other three. Well, we've seen God move and do some miracles, but we haven't quite seen as many as maybe that church. 
or, you know, we're doing okay, we haven't made a great impact in the community, but I think we're about the same as all the other churches, so I guess we're okay. It can happen in our personal lives. Someone may say, well, how are you doing in your walk with Christ? How's it going? And you say, well, I don't have it all together, but I do feel like I'm a little bit further along than Fred over there, and so I guess I'm doing okay. There's nobody named Fred in here, is there? I really struggled with that name. I was like, man, I don't want to name anybody and get in trouble, so... I was just going to put my own name in there if I needed to. So the tendency is that we compare ourselves against what we would consider as average. And as long as we think we're a bit above the average, doing a little bit better maybe than this other person, we feel like we're doing okay. But this is actually a mentality that Paul corrected in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles and you want to flip over over there, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you don't have your Bible, we will throw it on. It's already up there. They're good. All right, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. The Apostle Paul is writing. He says, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. So to set the stage of what's happening here, in Corinth, there were some false teachers who came along, and they were challenging Paul's teaching and his authority. And they liked to commend themselves, and they were saying that they were something really special. And they came to this conclusion by measuring and comparing themselves to one another and to the other people in the church. And they felt like maybe they were just a bit more spiritual than everyone else. They were above average when compared to others. And Paul has a pretty strong rebuke and some correction for them that you can see in verses 13 to 18. I recommend you check that out this week. But for today's sermon, what I want you to notice is that Paul says it is unwise to measure ourselves against one another. It is not wise if we try to determine where we are in our walk with Christ by comparing it to an average believer. And the reason it is not wise is that God did not create us to be average or simply above average, certainly not below average. He created us to be normal. God created us to be normal. So what is normal? Well, normal was found in the life of Christ. Normal is found in the life of Christ. We said earlier That normal is defined by the ideal standard, and that is what Christ came to do. He came to set a standard and show us how we should live our lives. And so the Bible defines many different ways and reasons that Christ came. It says that he came to demonstrate God's love. He came to carry our sorrow and grief. He came to fulfill the legal demands and requirements of the law. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to pay the price for our sins and pay the ransom that we could never pay. All of these different things and so many more the Bible defines as reasons that Christ came to this earth. But there's one reason that doesn't always get the attention I believe it should. And that is Christ came to show us what the normal Christian life should and could be. He came to show us what should be considered the normal Christian life. So Jesus came and he set the standard for what the normal Christian life should be and then told us that we are also called to be normal. Two verses from the Gospel of John. 
John 20, 21, it says, And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then John 14, 11 to 14, it says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So the first verse is Jesus tells them, as the Father sent me, I am now sending you. And then he tells the disciples that they would do the works that he did and even greater works. See, when Jesus was on this earth, he was setting an example for how we should live. He came and he set a standard as to what should be considered a normal Christian life. He showed us how we should live our lives. Unless we think this is some impossible thing, consider the early church as recorded in the book of Acts. The apostles, the disciples, the early church in Acts, they took that baton from Jesus and they lived the normal Christian life. They did the same works that Christ did. So if you read the book of Acts, you will see the normal Christian life played out in front of your eyes. It's simply the continuation of the ministry of Jesus that's seen in bold and fearless preaching and mass salvation. It's seen in love and care and extravagant generosity towards one another. It's seen in lives that are completely changed for Jesus through salvation. It's seen through the healing of men that were born lame. It's seen in crowds who gathered and brought their sick to the disciples and those who are tormented by spirits, and it says all of them were healed. It's seen in, the bold, it's seen in boldness in the face of persecution, in visions and angelic visitation, in great outpourings of the Holy Spirit, in casting out of evil spirits, in prophesying, in the gospel being preached into idol-filled demonic cities with many coming to Christ. It's seen in the raising of the dead, supernatural provision, and I could go on and on and on. Have you read the book of Acts? It's awesome. What's interesting, though, is that none of this would have seemed all that crazy to the early church because they simply continued to do what Jesus did and what he told them they would also do. Now, unfortunately, the church today, through many generations, over the span of about 2,000 years, I believe we've settled a bit. And what we find now is that we as believers often compare ourselves to other believers instead of comparing ourselves to Christ. And the question we must always ask is, are we living like Christ did? Are we living just an average American Christian life, or are we living the normal one? 1 John 2, 6. And I don't think I have this one, so I apologize, but it's pretty short. It says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live like he did. So what does this look like in our lives? Well, this should be seen in two different ways. There's two sides to the same coin. It's what we don't do, and it's what we do. See, living like Jesus shows itself in purity and in holy living. In other words, there's things we just don't do. But it also shows itself in positive works. In other words, things that we actually do. Good works, but also supernatural works through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So let's start with that first one. 
See, the normal Christian life should be one of holy consecration unto Christ. We are called to be righteous as he is righteous. And I know that's not very popular today, and I know that's been twisted and taught on so poorly many times. But the Bible is very clear. See, the New Testament refers to born-again believers numerous times as saints. The literal translation there is holy ones. The fact of the matter is that there is a standard for how we should live, and there are things that we should avoid, not in an effort to try to become holy and strive for holiness so that maybe I can attain and be holy. There are things that we avoid and don't allow into our lives because we are holy. Because when we come to Christ, he makes us holy. You're holy before God. When you receive Jesus, you are holy before the Father. And so there are things in our lives that we say, I don't want anything to do with that, not because I'm striving to become holy, but because Jesus has already made me holy. And we're going to preach on that a lot more in the future, so I won't hit that one as hard today. But holiness isn't about a laundry list of do's and don'ts or what you wear to church. It's the condition of a heart. And we are called to live holy lives, not because there's a God in heaven who's angry and wants to kick us every time we mess up, but because there's a God in heaven who desires what is best for us and desires to give us an abundant, full, and meaningful life which can only come in close relationship with him. And so we consecrate ourselves unto Christ because he's brought us into that relationship with him. And if through the Holy Spirit we guard the condition of our heart, the outward manifestation will come in alignment with the standard for which Christ set. Holiness is always about the heart because the Bible tells us all the issues of life flow from there. It's about the condition of our heart. We are called to live like Jesus because he set the standard. And there's no greater joy than living in the freedom that Christ has for us. But we should also realize that Jesus wasn't just known for what he didn't do. He was known for the incredible things that he did. You may remember the Samaritan woman. Jesus has this encounter with her. She runs back into the town and she says, come and see the man who told me everything. Mary and Martha, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus, they both ran to him at separate times and they said, Jesus, if only you were here, Lazarus would still be alive. He was known for the incredible things that he did. He was known for his extravagant love and the extravagant miracles, signs, and wonders that operated through his life. See, wherever he went, people flocked to him because he was known for the incredible things that he did. So let's bring this back to the discussion of the word revival. The reason I don't like how the modern church uses this word, and the reason I believe the word revival can be dangerous, is that what we call revival in our day was really just normal to the early church. What we call revival, they would have said, that's just normal. That's just what we're supposed to do and be. Now, there's different definitions of the word revival. The main two, it would be this time of great repentance where people are coming to Christ and there's salvations and there's purification in the body of Christ. The second one would include that and also have aspects of supernatural work, signs, wonders, and miracles being accomplished. And while these may not be things an average church sees in great amount today, they are certainly what should be considered normal. They're certainly what should be considered normal. The very works that Christ did, we should also be doing. He said it himself. The first generation Christians understood it and they walked in it. They lived the normal Christian life. People looked at them and they said, man, they just look so much like Jesus. 
Something about them and everything they do, it just reminds us of who Jesus is. They lived up to the standard that Christ showed them. Now, unfortunately, and this is where we need to be careful, it is, it is not hard to begin to just drift. And over time, even a little bit of drifting can get you way off course, slowly but surely. Now, I heard someone once give an example of a guy building a deck. This guy wanted to build a, build a deck. He was not so handy, which means I can really personally relate to this. Don't ask me to help you build a deck. It won't end well for any of us. I'll probably end up in the hospital, and you may follow me a few weeks later when the deck collapses. So. But this guy wasn't so handy, but he decides that through the power of the internet, he can figure this thing out, and he can handle building it. And so he goes, he rents all the equipment he needs, he rents a circular saw, he gets the wood, and at one point he needs 10 boards cut to the same size. And so he went ahead, took the first board, he measures it out with his measuring tape, goes ahead, and he makes that cut. But then when he went to make the second cut and cut the second piece of wood, instead of measuring it with the measuring tape, he says, hey, I already have a piece of wood that's the right size. I'll just line the second board up with this first board, line them up, and make the cut. And then he discards that one. He takes that second board that he cut, and he lines it up, and he uses it to make the third cut. And he does this all the way through until he uses the ninth board that he cut to make that tenth cut. Well, what happened? Well, when he compared the first board he cuts and the tenth board he cut, he finds that they're way off. They're way off. They're not the same size. Why? He didn't measure against the original standard. And each successive cut that he made was just a little bit further off from that standard. Maybe not enough to seem significant or even to be seen with his eye, but what happens is 10 cuts later, the difference was noticeable. Now, if a generation is approximately 40 years, then we've seen about 50 generations since Christ, and my fear is that each one has moved just a little bit further away from the original standard just a little bit further away from the original standard. And over time, what happens is that little bit of drifting has led to being so far away. And what happens is you see so many, they make the mistake of looking around and saying, well, we're not all that different from this generation that came before us, so I guess we're doing okay. We're not any different than this other church, so I guess we're doing okay. So what happens today is we often look at the accounts in the book of Acts and we say the disciples were having a great revival, but really they were just living out the normal Christian life. They simply did what Christ said they would do. It was the normal life as compared to the standard bearer, Jesus. We can never compare ourselves to previous generations or other churches. We should compare ourselves only to the original standard set by Christ. See, I would propose to you that the spirit-filled life is to be a lifetime of revival. We shouldn't need a revival to come and get us to be what Christ said we would be and to do what he said we would do. See, revival shares the same root as the word revive. Only someone who is dead or nearly dead needs to be revived. So what's that say about a church in America that's constantly crying out for our need of revival? Not a good thing. Now, I know you may be sitting there. All right, Pastor Josh, you're saying that maybe the church isn't quite living up to Christ's original standards, so don't we need a revival? Well, I would say not if it's how we typically define it. What we need is fresh and consistent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
See, the reason we always have people talk about revival is that we so often view it as a temporary event that comes for a period of time before things go back to the way they are. Right? It's this temporary thing where God shows up, he does some really cool stuff, but eventually we just sort of fade back and we end up where we were before that revival came. But what I want us to see is that the book of Acts covers approximately 30 to 35 years of early church history. And what you notice is that the same amazing miracles being done at the beginning of the book are still being done at the very end. 2 Corinthians 3.18 we have that one. It says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. I love this verse. It tells us that in our lives, we are called to go from glory to glory. Some translations translate that as ever increasing glory, saying that we can become more and more like Jesus throughout our lives. What I want us to note is that the Christian life is meant to have this increase, where we increase and increase and go further in him. It's not meant to have these wild spikes, and then we fade, and then this wild spike, and then we fade. Every encounter, every experience that you have with God is to make you more like Christ, and it's meant to set a new floor in your walk with him that you then can grow from. So I'm here today to tell you, your spiritual fervor doesn't need to diminish. We can grow more in love with Jesus. We can become more on fire for him and more like him throughout all of our lives. And I would argue that that's actually the normal life. But I've heard people say, oh, you know, you get saved and you have this spiritual fervor and this excitement, but that eventually just sort of fades away. That's tragic to even think that way because we should be becoming more and more fire for Jesus as we go. We can fall more in love with him. See, I can tell you, I'm praying for a fresh outpouring of the spirit on this church and in our generation like we've never experienced before. But I'm also praying that we would understand how to steward it and how to walk in it and to not treat it like a temporary thing where we get goosebumps and God does some good, awesome things, but a few weeks later, we just settled back to the way we were previously. See, what God does in and through our lives and in the church is meant to increase through time if we will stay connected with him, if we will add the fuel to the fire. See, in the Old Testament, you could see that the Lord sent the fire on the offering, but the priests were responsible for keeping it burning. We as a church need to keep it burning, and then from that place, we cry out for even more. But each fresh outpouring of the Spirit should be like adding fuel to the fire that's already burning and not relighting one that we've allowed to go out. Every outpouring of the Spirit should just be fuel on the fire of the flames that are already burning inside of our lives. Our lives are to be revival. On fire for God, doing the same works and should remind people of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there won't be tough times. You saw that in the book of Acts. They went through very difficult times. So I'm not preaching some sort of like shallow prosperity gospel that ignores that we live in a fallen world where bad things happen and people go through tough times. We do. But through all of those difficulties as born-again, spirit-filled believers, it should only serve to bring us closer to Christ, to bring us closer to him, serve as another opportunity to grow in him. When you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. And if we get squeezed, we should show the world Christ. Holy Spirit outpouring. Call it revival if you must, 
is meant to be a lifestyle and not a temporary event. Christ wants to pour out his spirit on us and on us and his church over and over and over again. We receive and then we take it out to the world and we give it away. And then we come back and we receive and then we take it out to the world and we give it away. And then we do it over and over and over again. See, that is the normal Christian life, living to the standard that Christ set. Now, unfortunately, many in our day, they've settled for living a life with less than what Christ said was available to us. So many believers in so many churches, they've settled for average instead of believing and pressing in to be normal. See, there are two common paths that many churches have followed that I think have led to where we are today. The first is they justify being less than what Christ said is normal. So you have some crazy theology out there. You have cessationism, right? They basically justify why we aren't doing what Christ said we should be doing by saying we were never meant to. It's absolutely crazy. It's absurdly unbiblical, and it's a doctrine of demons, not of God. It's a doctrine of demons and not of God to say that the Lord and the Holy Spirit is not operating in power in our world today. But even in churches that believe for God to move in our day, Pentecostal churches, we still often see people who water down that standard. We got to be careful because what can happen is we can reduce the standard of God's word down to our experience instead of crying out for God to raise our experience to his standard. Let me give an example of this. We can pray for someone who is sick and say they don't get immediate breakthrough. Ever been there? Been there. Don't love it. But there's a couple things we can do in that moment. First, we could decide we're going to water down God's standard, and we're going to say, well, they didn't get the breakthrough, and so maybe healing really isn't for today. I've never personally experienced it, so I guess maybe God just doesn't do that anymore. And what we do in that moment is we take the standard of God's word that's up here, and we water it down and bring it down to our experience. And when you do that, you have simply leveled off, and you'll never go beyond But in that moment, if we don't get breakthrough, we can take the other path and we can say, no, I am not going to water down God's standard and bring it to my experience. I'm going to press in to know him more. I'm going to continue to believe. I'm going to continue to step out and pray and lay hands on the sick. And I'm going to cry out until I see my experience raised to his standard. So we must never water down the standard of God. We can never make excuses because what you excuse, you allow. What you excuse, you allow, and the church is allowed for walking in so much less than what the word says because there's just been so many excuses made. Now, the other mistake that can be made is we simply settle for less than what Christ demonstrated. People receive Christ as Savior, but then they don't press in for more. See, what can happen in this situation is it can sort of act like a flu shot. Does everybody know how a flu shot works? Some of you are like, I don't like getting shots, sorry. But with a flu shot, what you do, you go and they give you just a little bit of the dead flu virus. And then what happens is it keeps you from getting the full-blown case. Well, I think what's happened often in the Western church is that we've settled for just a little bit of God. And it sort of works like a flu shot that keeps us from getting that full-blown outbreak of him. There's an evangelist named Damon Thompson, and he said, the world has never been changed by a people who have just enough of God to ease their conscience about the fact that they don't truly know him. 
I think it's the testimony of so many in the Western church. They have just enough of God, just enough of him to sort of make them feel comfortable. Hey, I'm going to go to heaven someday. You know, I'm good to go. But God is saying there is so much more for my church. I'm calling you to live normal. If the worship team wants to come, they can go ahead and come on up. See, Bethel, I'm standing here this morning, and I'm saying that we must never justify and we must never settle. We must be a church that declares we want to be everything that Christ has called us to be and that we will be and the church will truly dedicate ourselves to this one thing, being like Jesus and living like he did. When did you sit there today? Is there anyone else in here who's just desperate, desperate to see the greater things, desperate to walk in the power that Christ said is available, desperate to return to the normal standard? Amen. See, this is what's going to change our communities. A weak church leads to a sick community. A powerful, glory-filled church will lead to a community that is whole and is healed. And so I'm inviting you this morning to join me in making a declaration that we will never be satisfied to walk in less than what Christ has for us. That we will never be satisfied to simply be average and we will determine that we are going to be normal. This is available to us in the exact same manner that it was available to the church in the book of Acts. I want you to dream for a moment. What could Bethel look like and what impact could we be having in people's lives in this community if we pressed in for all that God has for us and we became a normal church as defined in the life of Christ and seen in the early church? I don't want to be average. I don't want to be above average. I want to be what Christ would call normal. And so it begins in our personal lives as we dedicate ourselves to knowing him. In prayer, in the word, in those things, you throw fuel on the fire that God desires to put inside of you. See, Paul told Timothy, you need to fan into flame the gift of God. In other words, God plants something inside of you, and now it's on you to start fanning that thing into a flame. Next, we need to expect more. We need to expect more. It's what we talked about after worship. We start believing and expecting that every single week can be powerful. That every single service can be overflowing in the spirit. That every time we sit down to read our Bibles and pray and spend time with God, that he can do something amazing inside of us. I mean, we've all been there. We go to these special services, right? And it seems like God moves in such a powerful way there. And then sometimes we're like, well, why aren't we seeing the same things every Sunday? It's only one difference between the two. It's your expectation. When we go to those things, we tend to go with this great expectancy, like, oh man, God is going to do all of these amazing things. I can't wait to be a part of it. What if we had that same attitude every single Sunday morning? And we woke up on Sunday morning and we said, I cannot wait to get to church today because you just don't know what God is going to do. I'm going to get to church today expecting signs, wonders, and miracles that God is going to do something magnificent. If we came with that same level of expectation, I promise you we would see things that we can't even imagine now. We need to press in for Holy Spirit outpouring. Not once a year during a special service, but every day of our lives, every time we meet, we cry out and give the Holy Spirit space to move and ignite our hearts. 
Think about it this way. In the New Testament, we were told that we would be lights. So what was the source of light during the New Testament times? It wasn't electric light bulbs. How many people are so thankful for electricity? Oh gosh, my electric goes off and I'm like, just, it's not good. It's not good. But back in the day, it was fire, it was torches, it was lanterns. And so when the original disciples and those in the early church heard Christ say, you need to be lights, their minds would have turned to fire. We need the fire of the Holy Spirit. We need the burning, blazing fire of the Holy Spirit. And we need to cultivate it in our lives through reading of the word, times of prayer, worship, fellowship with other believers, Sunday morning gatherings, and then we let it shine for the world to see going to stop being afraid to tell someone about Jesus. Stop being afraid to just stop and pray for that person who's sick or going through something. We can make an impact in people's lives. One person, one conversation, one prayer, one link added to their chain at a time. How we live and how this church operates matters. There are people in this world who are perishing while so many believers and so many churches sit back living below what Christ has called us to. There's a verse in the Bible that is absolutely quite sobering. And it's Luke 15, 7, and it tells us there is joy over one sinner who repents. Now, I know you might be sitting there saying, well, why is that a sobering verse? We love that verse. We celebrate that verse. We quote that verse all the time. Well, it's sobering because the inverse is also true. If there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, there is sorrow over one sinner who perishes. This day, there are people that are perishing and going to an eternity without God. And they have one hope. It's Jesus through the church. There's joy over one sinner who repents. There's sorrow over one sinner who perishes. And we are the ones who have the truth that they need. We must live normal because the stakes are so high. This isn't just a pep talk or anything else. We must become normal because eternity is at stake in people's lives. See, I am a sold-out Pentecostal who absolutely, unashamedly believes that signs, wonders, and miracles are for today. I am a Pentecostal that believes that signs, wonders, and miracles are what should be considered normal. I am a Pentecostal who believes that when a church does not see signs, wonders, and miracles, they are abnormal. Because it should be who we are. Because Jesus said, the works I did, you will also do. That wasn't just some sort of nice pep talk and send us out in the way. Jesus expects that in his church, there would be a faith-filled people who believe and give themselves to this one thing. That the power of God would flow freely and we would see people impacted for his kingdom. You and I are called to see signs, wonders, and miracles in our lives. You're called to see it in your life. And it has a purpose, and we discussed this in the Foundational Truth Series on the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit is given to us, and these things are done so that men and women will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. They're not given so we have bragging rights. 
They aren't given for our own amusement or so that we seem spiritual. They are given to empower us to impact the world around us and reach people that if something doesn't change in their lives, they're going to spend an eternity separated from their Father in heaven. We should be desperate and uncompromising, willing to pay any price to walk in the power of God because eternity is truly at stake for people's lives. Bethel must become a normal church. A normal church. I don't care what any other church does or looks like. Bethel in the days and the years to come should be writing a story that sounds a whole lot like the book of Acts. Come on. Bethel should be writing a story and we should be seeing God move in this church and out in our community that if people read it, they would say, man, that just sounds a lot like what I read in the book of Acts. When the book of Acts has no end, it's one of those awesome things. If you read the book of Acts, you get to the end of it in chapter 28 and Luke just sort of stops writing. There's no hallelujah at the end. There's no amen. You say, well, why is that? because it was never meant to end. And each successive generation is supposed to add their chapter to the book of Acts. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we add to the word of God. I'm just saying that we continue that same amount of things, those same signs that were being done. Jesus was the most normal Christian that ever lived. And my prayer is that all of us would passionately desire and press in to live a normal Christian life as well. And my prayer is that this awakens something inside of all of us today. And that we would no longer be satisfied to settle for anything less than what Christ said we could have. And that we would press in in the days to come. We would begin to see a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. Not once, not twice, but every single day and every time we gather. And that, would, and that it would empower us to go forth like the church in Acts to advance the kingdom powerfully here today to tell you that God has more for your life than just living the American dream. He wants you to live a normal Christian life where signs, wonders, and miracles follow you everywhere you go. Are we willing to step outside? To step outside of our routine and outside of our comfort zones? Are we willing this very day to stand and make a declaration that Jesus, from this day forward, we will be a normal church? And that's how I would like to end today. In just a moment, I'm going to open up these altars, and I would love to just invite you. If you are with us today and you are saying, Pastor Josh, I want to be part of living a normal Christian life. I want to be part of a church that is just considered normal in the eyes of God. I want you to just flood these altars and just begin to seek after him because it's the power of God that we need today. And so we're going to give an opportunity for the Lord to just respond in power. If you want to go ahead and stand to your feet for a moment. If you're here today, we're going to respond as a church. But if you're here today and you need a miracle in your body, a miracle in your mind, a miracle in your finances, we have people that would love to pray with you before you go. Because God wants to come and just show that what I said is true. So I believe God can just come and do mighty, miraculous things here today. If you're here today and you have not made that declaration and that decision that you want to walk with Jesus, but you're saying, I want to, I want you to just come find me as we pray. 
and I would love to introduce you to him. He has amazing plans and purposes for your life. But for right now, church, let's just get down to business. And if you're here today, I would just want to invite you to join me. If you want to make that declaration with me today, would you just begin to come to these altars now? If you just say, Lord, we want to be a normal church. We want to be a normal people for you. Just go ahead and come and just begin to seek the Holy Spirit. Begin to cry out for God to just pour it out over this place. That Bethel would be normal in the eyes of God. I just invite you as the worship team leads us in, just press in for what he has for us. Cry out to the Holy Spirit. Let's just press in for a bit. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at BethelAG.com or on Facebook at Bethel Assembly of God, Littlestown, Pennsylvania. Our services are also live streamed every Sunday on our YouTube channel, Bethel AG, Littlestown, Pennsylvania.